First Timothy chapter one, and uh, this message is sort of to set the groundwork and to help with a question that was asked about Christian Reconstructionism. Reconstructionism is this idea that, um, <clears throat> well, the question was kind of threefold. I also had about uh, should Christians change the wicked culture of our nation by getting into politics and isn't New Testament focus on the Great Commission rather than civil government. So, you know, Christian reconstruction of them is this, is this reconstructionism, is this philosophy that we as Christians are going to change the world, we're going to Christianize the world, and, and then we're going to make it, we're going to, we're going to kind of bring in the kingdom and then Christ is going to come and rule over it. But it's the idea of we're going to do it. And, and of course, you know, in the 80s, late 70s and 80s, with the proliferation of uh, the church, the mega church movement, the um, Jerry Falwell's more majority, and all these things that you know, that preachers getting into politics and and that sort of thing, and so there was this, this there was this great push to Christianize America, you know. And uh, they were going to bring in the kingdom. That's, that was the philosophy of all that, a lot of that. Uh, <clears throat> I used to get literature all the time from Jerry Falwell, and finally I wrote him one day and said, you know, if, if God's called you to pre- be a pastor, why are you so involved in politics, you know? And, and uh, I, I finally got off his, his mailing list. But, but uh, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with a Christian being involved in politics. However, can a push, can a Christian be faithful to the Lord and be involved in politics? That is a good question. That is up for debate. But as we think about some of these things, I want to start tonight with what is the purpose of the law of God? What is the purpose of the law of God in relation to our government and our world? So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says, But we know that law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which committed to my trust, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus... Our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which was in Christ Jesus. So, purpose of the law. We'll look at that tonight. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. We pray, Father, as we look into the word of God tonight, that we'd be instructed and encouraged and challenged. And I pray that we understand this truth and the purpose of the law and as it relates to government and society. I pray that you would help us to understand and realize that uh, though we are not under the law, 
as Christians, we are under the law of Christ. And uh, <clears throat> help us to use the Word of God wisely and to see the need for upholding the law of our land uh, as given to us in our Constitution. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one, first tonight I want to look at the origin go to the origin or consider the origin of human government. And to do this, you have to go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 and verses 5 and 6. Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6. <clears throat> well, the Bible says, of course, this is Noah's just coming off the ark. And God's giving Noah's commandments concerning life after the ark. And... And it says, in, let's start in verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That was the command that was originally given in the Garden of Eden. Fear And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, upon all the fishes of the sea, in your hand they are delivered. Again, that was kind of given, you know, there wasn't a fear that was given in the Garden of Eden, but God did say that man shall have dominion over the animal, over creation. And, and along with that dominion comes a fear of a man from animal, the animal world. You know, it's, it's, there's a natural fear. You know, sometimes we say some animals aren't afraid of man, but often animals attack man out of fear. They're, they're, they are fearful because man has invaded their territory. Uh, you know, uh, and so they become fearful and they react to that. Like, you know, some people say, well, certain dogs are fear biters. In other words, they react out of fear. And they will attack a person out of fear. But it's natural, it's instinctive for an animal to be afraid of man, of human beings. Uh, and that's what the Lord is saying here. Every, and every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. So now there's been meat added to the diet. Uh, praise the Lord, right? Uh, even even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your, and here's, here it is, surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require, it, at the hand of every of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for the image of God made he man. So God here has given them commandments, you know, as they're coming off the ark, and He gives them a command concerning a law or what we call human government. And He says that He says that if a man kills somebody, then man is to put that person to death. And, and this is what we call human government. Uh, theologians call this, refer to this as the dispensation of human government. And a dispensation simply refers to a period of time and God's purpose during that period of time. This command did not govern prior you know, prior times, up until this time. There had been no law concerning uh, putting a murderer to death. You know, there was really no laws given up until this time by God. What governed man's life was his conscience up until this time. But here we have this God giving this command, and, and we call this the, the dispensation or time of, of human government. You know, Paul referred to dispensations in Ephesians 3 
when he said the dispensation of the gospel or the grace of God was given to me. And he wrote, you know, the, you know, we, we talk about the law and the age of grace. Those are two different dispensations. We're under grace. The Old Testament saints were under the law. And so those are just periods of time in the Bible. Well, here we have this law given of human government. And again, up until Genesis 9, there were really no laws of government that were, had been set forth to rule or reign in the conduct of man except his conscience. You know, Genesis 3, 5, when God was talking to Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and, and you know, one of the things that Satan said to them, For God doth know the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And... They were forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Now, God was protecting them from that. But now, since they've eaten of that, they, they have a conscience whereby they know good and evil. But it's a conscience. It's just a conscience. So, so by man's sin, by man's disobedience, man came to a personal and experimental knowledge of good and evil. So through that sin, that disobedience, the knowledge of conscience was awakened. He now knows the difference between good and evil. His conscience tells him. However, we know that man's conscience is not very reliable to govern us. Uh, for example, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Of course, as we thinking about a man's conscience... Knowing good and evil. Look at John chapter 8. We see an example of this. John chapter 8. The Pharisees brought to Jesus the woman taken in adultery. And uh, in verse 2 it says, And early in the morning as he came into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he had heard them not. So when they continued asking, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that was without sin among you cast the first stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? All hath no man condemned thee. She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. See, he said to them, Okay, which, whatever one of you is without sin, you can throw the first stone. So they began to think about that. But their conscience convicted them that they were not without sin. They weren't without sin. Your Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, gives us some enlightenment concerning the conscience as well. Romans 2, 14 and 15, where it says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, so the, Gent the law wasn't given to the Gentiles, uh, <clears throat> have not the law, 
do by nature things contained in the law, these having not the law, are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, and meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So, you know, even, even you know, the Gentiles who didn't have the law, their conscience told them that certain things were right and certain things were wrong. You know, that's why, you know, one pastor used to always say that you know, nobody steals his neighbor's cow and ties it in the front lawn. Why? Because his conscience tells him it's wrong to take what's my neighbor's. His conscience. Our conscience can be subjective. In fact, it says here that their thoughts are meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. You know, in some countries in our world today, and it's becoming this way here, if something's laying outside the fence, as most of them, a lot of places in the world have fences around, you have fences around your property for a reason. If there's something laying outside the fence, even if it's on your property, they think it's okay to take it. I mean, you know, when I was in the Ukraine, the missionary said, if anything's left outside that fence, it won't be there in the morning. They think it's okay to take it. Even if it's on your property. Now, we, we don't have very many, you know, a lot of people in America don't have fences. Only the people who want to ban guns, you know. A lot of them have fences. Uh, <coughs> that's kind of a joke, but a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, but that, of course, that is coming popular here. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine some years ago, and he said that, that you know, he has a little bit of woodland, and it, and it you know, he has a, he's, he has a, like a, a small farm. He doesn't farm or anything, but it's just a small, you know, I don't know, maybe it might be 10 acres. But and there's a little bit of woodland on it, and so there were some trees down there, and this guy just came, drove up one day and pulled off the road and started cutting firewood on his property. Um, and so the conscience can be rendered useless. It, it can be. It, it, you know, conscience is sometimes subjective. You know, Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it's reported commonly there's fornication among you, such com- fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. In other words, even the Gentiles who don't have the law would say this isn't right. Their conscience would tell them this. And yet you're doing it. You're allowing it. 1 Timothy 4, 2 says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hard iron. And that's talking about apostates who in the last days are going to give commandments forbidding to marry and abstaining from meats which God has given uh, for us to, to eat and so on. Uh, Titus 1.15 says, Under the pure all things are pure, but under them that are defiled and unbelieving there is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. You wonder sometimes as you read things and you maybe watch things on news and you would may ask yourself this question, how can, how can people, how can human beings, thinking human beings, be so wicked or deceived or, or, or you know, evil? I say it's a defiled conscience. It's a power of conscience. 
And this is what happened. See, this is what happened to the pre-flood world. They knew they were going to be guarded or, or governed by their consciences, so there's no written down law. There was no law, thou shalt not kill. There was no law that said if you kill a man, then you need to be put to death by man. So there was none of that uh, that God had given. It was just their conscience to know good and evil. And so after a while, you know, people started just having different ideas about what was good and what was evil. And there was this continuous progression of sin until in Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through 8, the Bible says that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and agreed him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so this was the, this was the result of man being try, just governed by his conscience. And so when Noah came off the ark, God gave him the institution of human government. And we would call this, we refer to this often as capital punishment. You take a person's life purposely, willfully, you kill someone, you are to be put to death. But that isn't the only thing implied there. I want you to think about this a little bit. In that command, that rule of law, which is self-evident truth that all men are created equal, there's no stipulation that, well, if one was a slave, you were allowed to kill him. No, it just said, if a man sheds a man's blood, by man shall that man be put to death. There was no, no stipulations, well, if he's your servant, you're allowed to beat him to death. Because he is your servant. None of that. So, what you really see here is the idea that it's, it's, it's a, God is saying, look, it's wrong to take a person's life. It's wrong to take a person's property. It's wrong to take a person's uh, away, a person's pursuit of happiness or property. Because you are taking from Him. You are violating His God-given right to life. And the things that go along with life. See, to kill a man is to take his life. To commit, commit adultery against another is to take of his person, his spouse. To steal his horse is to take his property. Again, you're still taking from him. We just think that taking his life is worse. To bear false witness or to lie or to slander is to take somebody's reputation. And so implied in this, and, and as we see as time goes on, you know, God does expand or expound upon you take a man's life, by a man shall you be put to death. When we come to Exodus, book of Exodus. So, 
really in that command that he gave in Genesis 9 is the root of the fact of what Thomas Jefferson said in our, in our uh, Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with, with certain inalienable rights. Inalienable means given to us by God, which cannot be taken away. Cannot be taken away. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness or property. So this is the origin of human government. And, of course, this is where all law stems from concerning human government. So, no, and secondly, I want to notice the practice. So that's the origin. I want to notice the practice of human government or law. Go to, and go back to First Timothy chapter 1 and verses 8. Verse 8. Now, as we think about the law here, we're talking of laws of government given by God, which includes some of the Ten Commandments. But you notice some things that are missing here from the list of the Ten Commandments. And uh, if you notice, it says here that uh, verse 8, but we know that the law is, a good, is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man. Now, so, who, so the first question I have to ask is, of course, I may mention that the, there's several laws that are not addressed here. The first four of the Ten Commandments are not addressed here. That is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. There's nothing talking about idolatry here in this passage. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. There's nothing concerning uh, that here. Um, and, it's, and also, does it say anything about keeping a Sabbath day or a holy day? which those are laws relating between a man and his God, not man and his fellow man. So it has they don't have anything to do with human government. Those have to do with God's relationship with God, not human government. But you notice here who the law is, first of all, who the law is for. It says, knowing this, <coughs> the law is not made for a righteous man. I guess we don't have to keep the law then, right? Is that what that means? <clears throat> well, you know, you know what it really does mean? Righteous people don't need the law. Because we have a higher, we have a higher law, if you will. And to see this, go to Matthew 5. <clears throat> Matthew 5. You, know, you don't have to have law to govern righteous people. They will govern themselves by the Spirit of God. I remember when I was in Maine, I was visiting there in the town of Lee, and uh, <clears throat> I ran across this atheist. And he was a an older gentleman, he was probably in his 60s or 70s, and he had a, he had, I, I do remember he had a nice red Toyota pickup. Uh, but anyway, I got to talking with him. He, he, was, he was very open to, to talk and, dis, and discuss things, even religious things. And I remember him saying this one day, you know, which was caught me off guard. He said, he said, uh, he said, uh, you know, I believe, this is what I believe, even though, I, even though I'm an atheist, I believe this. That if everybody was a real Christian, 
Now, I'm not just talking about those that say they are and don't live it. I'm talking about a real Christian. I could get in my pickup truck, and I could drive across country, and I could just, if I needed to stop and spend the night somewhere, I could just pull into a Christian's driveway and, and ask if I could, you know, have a place, could park here for the night, and, and uh, you know, I could even sleep in my truck, but I would know that they wouldn't give me any problems. They would not wrong me in any way. He said, I, I get on these, uh, 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 well, at that time it was on emails, you know, and, and discussing these kind of things with, with other atheists and how they bash Christians as wicked and immoral and all this kind of people. And I say, no, they're not. Not true Christians. They are good people. You can trust them with your life. Now that was quite interesting. And really that's what Jesus said here. The righteous don't need the law to govern them. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness so exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, <coughs> excuse me, and then come and offer thy gift. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time he yet the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farley. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, not that thy whole body shall be cast into hell. If the right hand offend thee, cut it off. In other words, if you, if you have a problem with with you know, the five-finger discount, then cut off your hand and cast it from thee. For it is unprofitable that one of thy members should not perish, not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So what are you saying here? Look, you know, the, the, the law says thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say, okay, here's the righteousness that exceeds the letter of the law. Don't even lust after a woman. You know, if you don't ever lust after another woman, you won't ever commit adultery with her. If you don't ever hate anyone, you'll never kill anyone. That's the idea. And see, Jesus is saying, look, the law of the Spirit of God is higher. It's greater. It is of more power than the letter of the law. And that's why he says here, the law in Timothy, the law is not made for a righteous man. You know, a truly born-again, indwelt-by-the-Spirit-of-God person is not governed by the written law. The letter of the law. You know, their, their life motto is not, I won't, I won't kill you, but I hate your guts. You see, that, that could be the law. You could be keeping the law there and hate a person. No, see, that's the letter of the law. The Spirit of the law says, even though you're my enemy, I love you. 
That's the command of God. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you and despitefully use you and abuse you. And you should be like your Father, which is in heaven. Of course, that you go on in Matthew 5. See, though, so, so there is a higher law. See, so he says that the law is not made for a righteous man. You don't need laws to govern righteous people. The reason our government is getting increasingly bigger is, is because we are becoming more and more wicked in our nation. People will not govern themselves. They are lawless, as they're described here. It says, the law is but for the lawless and disobedient. You know, the word lawless means a violator or opposed to law, not subject to any authority. You know, what's, what's BLM and Antifa saying? We will not be governed by anyone. I just saw, read that recently. That's what they said. We will not be governed. That's lawless. And, and the Bible says here that the law is for this kind of person. Lawless. They're disobedient. They cannot be subject to control. They're unruly. They're ungodly. They're destitute of, of all towards God. They're condemning of God. You know, how do people, how do people display their contempt for God? Can they, can they get it, God? Let me give an illustration of how people show their contempt for God. In Genesis 10, the Bible tells us about a man by the name of Nimrod. And it says he began to be a mighty one in the earth. And verse 9 of that chapter says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. You know, and you know, there was a time I wondered, man, I wonder if he hunted stags or elk or white-tailed deer days. He was looking for trophy deer. Trophy deer. It says he was a mighty hunter. But it says before the Lord. And that before the Lord has uh, the idea of in the face of God. With contempt for God. And we know that because of what follows. He wasn't out hunting trophy antelope. No. In the beginning of his kingdom. He was pursuing men. And conquering men. He was hunting men. And his kingdom was Babel. And Eric. And Akkad. And Kenal. In the line of in the land of Shinar. And we know what happened in the land of Shinar. That's where they built the tower that they said was going to reach unto heaven and, and they were going to, they were going to, they're going to be like God. So this was, this hunting, so here's a man who has contempt for God. And he's pursuing and overcoming and overpowering and conquering men in the face of God. Killing men. And that's how people display their Contempt for God. It uses the word sinners here. And it's interesting because this is not the common usage of the word sinner. It means preeminently sinful. Preeminently sinful or especially wicked. Especially wicked. In other words, they're not just ordinary, you know, people that were without God. 
These people are especially wicked. They're given over to evil. Jude tells us in Jude verse 1, there are certain men crept in unawares who were fair of old, ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. The word ungodly here, ungodly and for sinners, these ungodly sinners, they, they are especially or preeminently sinful. The word lasciviousness is used here in Jude 4 refers to unbridled lust. You know, it doesn't define what lust it was for. But even in the religious world today, we see an unbridled lust for power, for influence, and especially for wealth. Massive wealth. You want to get rich, be one of these religious charlatans. Google sometimes the wealth of TV evangelists. And they get wealth. Their wealth has been gained by using religion. It also talks about murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. You know, Exodus 21.15 says, He that smiteth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. It talks about manslayers. Again, that's be referred to murderers. Of course, thou shalt not kill. Exodus 20 tells us that. Whoremonger, that's any kind of sexual sin. And those that defile themselves with mankind, that refer to homosexuality. Uh, Romans one twenty seven, of course, and Leviticus twenty thirteen talk about that that they are to be put to death, and and so and then he says this, and, it, and of course he talks about men stealers, those would be it, that would take people captive, kidnap them, and sell them for for slavery or whatever gratification. And by the way, which is very prominent in our world today, they're stealing people's lives for liars. Again, you're, you're taking or destroying the reputation of someone, perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. See, this is what the law is for. These are the people the law is for. You know, if, if, the, if the predominant or vast majority of Americans would be God-loving, God-honoring people, we would need a lot of the law enforcement that's in our country. We would need it. Because you don't have to have law enforcement to keep me from killing somebody or stealing my neighbor's nicer car than I have. Or taking Dave's tractor. You know, that I, I never thought about it. Well, maybe I shouldn't say I never thought about it, taking his tractor, but, but you know, I wouldn't think of that because there's a police officer that I'd have to deal with. Some years ago, a person was doing my taxes. Asked me a question. He said, you could do this. 
but it was, I said, I'd rather sleep at night. See, if you had God-fearing and God-honoring people, it doesn't require law enforcement for them to obey the law. They don't need it. They will govern themselves. They have an innate desire because the Spirit of God, the divine nature of God dwells within them and they have a desire to treat their fellow man with honor and respect and to do right by them. Because God loves them. And they understand that. And see, the purpose then of the law is to reign in and to keep under control and to condemn the lawless. That's the purpose of it. In fact, look at verses 12 through 15 here. And it says, And I thank Christ Jesus. Paul's here talking to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he kindly faithful, putting me in his ministry, who before was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Now, persecutor means he pursued with harassment or oppressive treatment. We're seeing a lot of that in our country taking happening more and more and more. Those that stand up for things that are right and true are being harassed. We call it the woke culture, cancel culture. Let's just cancel them out. They can't discredit the truth, so what do they do? They try and destroy the person who is trying to uphold the law. And that's what Paul was doing. He couldn't destroy the truth. He couldn't defeat the gospel. He couldn't defeat the Christians. So let's be, let's harass them. Let's oppress them. That's what he was doing. He was injurious. In other words, he was an insolent man. One who was lifted up with pride and, and heaps insulting language upon others and does shameful things and acts of wrong against them. And see, the law is given, Paul's telling us here, the law is given for this injurious and this unlawful and this person who's, who's, who's a man-stealer. You know what he, you know, really what he was doing was stealing persons' lives. He was hailing, arresting men and children, taking them from their livelihoods, putting them to prison, even unto death. And so he's saying if the law is given to restrain, it's to correct, it's to declare guilty. Guilty of sin and injustice before God. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is what he declares to the churches of Galatia. In Galatia chapter 3, verse 22, he says, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, so before he was made righteous, 
For faith came, we were kept under the law. Shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus in Christ Jesus. So, so he says, before faith came, we were under the law. Before faith in Christ, before I received Christ by faith, I was under the condemnation of the law. And the law was a schoolmaster, and what a schoolmaster was, was the one who was responsible to see that the child was, got, had, was, was, was taken to school. And see, the, the schoolmaster then, the law is our schoolmaster, to take us to Christ. See, the law says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're under condemnation. And you need deliverance. You need the knowledge of Christ. You need the salvation which is in Christ. To be uncondemned. You know, nobody likes to be condemned. Nobody likes to be condemned. Or declared guilty. But that's what our that's what the law does. It declares us guilty. And Paul says, before faith came, I was under that law. I was declared guilty. He said, I knew I was guilty. My conscience bothered me. And Jesus said to him in the Damascus Rose, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, Paul, you're, you're going, the way you're going is very hard and you know it's bothering you. Your conscience is bothered and, 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 and you're under, uh, uh, uh guilt for this. Repent. See, the law brought conviction into Paul's life of his sin, his offenses against his fellow man that were really against God. Because they were man-made in the image of God. So that's the purpose of the law. You know, if we don't enforce God's law, these laws of God, which are, by the way, we saw here a couple weeks ago, the Bible uses the word ordinance in First uh, Peter, obey every ordinance man for the Lord's sake. That word ordinance has to do with natural law or the law of God concerning human government. And see, that law, what that law does is convince it condemns and convinces the unjust, the lawless and disobedient, that they are guilty. There is one they have to, they will have to subject themselves unto. Do you ever wonder why 
the gospel is being received better in many foreign countries than it is in our country anymore. How many years ago did we throw out, basically throw out, the law that God gave instituting human government? I'm referring to capital punishment. And that is the basis for all the other laws. You see, when there's no consequence for sin, for unjust acts against other people, there's no consequence to that. The message that it gives to people is there will never be any consequence. The message it gives to people is there isn't a God who I'm going to be accountable to. There is no schoolmaster. And as we continue to erode away the laws of our Constitution, which come from nature's God, and don't uphold the laws of our land, we're going to continue to go down that path. Because people have the idea or now the idea now of well, who's to determine what is right and what is wrong? I mean, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, they're starting to teach critical race theory. And interpret the Bible, and they had somebody right over here at Southeastern Seminary, a lady, teaching that you interpret the Bible contextually according to your culture. So your culture then is the context from which you interpret the Bible. See, what's the basis of all this? We're without law. There's no law of God anymore that governs us. So we determine what law is. That's where we're headed in our country. And I believe it started when they started saying we need to quit. We should not put murderers to death. Because that is the basis for all human government. And I've often said it's because too many politicians are guilty themselves. They don't want to put murderers to death. See, yes, government is to enforce the laws of God that have to do with relationships with men. And that's what Paul's telling us here, 1 Timothy chapter 1. God's word is the basis for all law. Whether it be government, or whether it be the government of a church, you know, governing how we how we relate to God, although that's not enforced as of laws relating to man. And so, you know, the reason you have such difficulty convincing people today of their need to repent is because we have been taught for so many years that there isn't really an authority 
from which all law comes. But the Bible tells us that we must all give an account to God. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's pointed on a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. We know, as God's people, we know that we're all going to have to face God one day. All the world is going to have to face God one day. But to get to a person to understand their need to repent and receive Christ, they have to understand that there's a God that they're going to have to answer to. They're going to have to give an account to And it's His law that can convince them of their need to repent. It is the schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. 